As we're going through our summer series on origins, uh, June, Genesis chapter one, and the creation of the universe and everything in it and the amazing God who did that. In July, we looked at the pinnacle of creation, that is the humanity and you and I made in the image of God and how beautiful and wonderful that is. And today, well, today's gonna start to feel a little different because we're now in Genesis chapter three and I like to call it the worst day ever. Did any of you ever read to your kids Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Yeah, that's what we're talking about today and for the next couple of weeks. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Now, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about today with a, a sense, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a sense of, of a carefulness and caution. Uh, there's some people that they just kind of revel in talking about sin and what's gone wrong. I mean, it's almost like they delight in pointing those things out. And I take no delight at all in talking about Genesis chapter 3 and what has gone wrong. None whatsoever. So we want to have the gifts of, of wisdom and carefulness and empathy and, and just being, being very, very uh, appropriate as we talk about these things. But Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven, let me read a couple of these. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Uh, verse four, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Genesis chapter three is the explanation for what's gone wrong. Genesis chapter three is the reason why things are not the way they are supposed to be in the way we would love them to be. Genesis chapter three is the story of original sin and ongoing sin. It was G.K. Chesterton, a British author uh, from a past generation. He says, you know, of all the Christian beliefs there are, the only one that is empirically verifiable over the last 2,000 years is that of original sin. We see it everywhere all the time, and yet that's the one that we try to most deny and, and hide from. Uh, Dallas Willard, in his amazing book, Renovation of the Heart, he has a chapter that I believe is the single best chapter I have ever read about sin. But listen to the title, Radical Evil in the Ruined Soul. That's Genesis chapter three, radical evil in our ruined souls. I mean, that is hard language to hear. Uh, it, was, it was Billy Joel who's saying, saying the words, oh, we didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning. Well, not quite since the world's been turning, but close. 
Genesis chapter 3 is dealing with all of these things. And have you noticed as we've gone through this whole summer of, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's been very hard to talk about those chapters like isolated from one another. You, you can't do that. They weave together. So like every time we talked about the image of God in us, it's like we, well, we, we no longer had the ideal image we can talk about. So we had to talk about the reality of what sin has done to that image. And now in chapter three, as we're going to be talking about sin and what is done to the image of God, you know, all throughout chapter three, there's going to be like the, the hints and foretastes of, of redemption. I mean, back to Dallas, Dallas Willard, you know, in his book where he talks about radical evil and the ruined soul. That's Genesis chapter three. But then immediately the next chapter is radical goodness restored to the soul. That's redemption, creation, fall, redemption. I mean, they all weave together. We can't talk about them isolated. They, they just, there are a, a consistent integrated whole. And that's what we are going to wind up seeing as we go through, uh, as we go through August. Every, every worldview, Every big story that is out there, every major belief system, every political ideology, every school of psychology or sociology, every one of them has to give an answer to some really important questions. The first question is, well, well, what has gone wrong with the world? Do we really understand what's gone wrong with the world? And a second question is, well, just how bad is it? Is it like nuisance level bad and convenience level bad? Or is it like tragedy level bad? Just how bad are things? And why did it happen? How did it go so wrong? And all that pays way to the next question. And that is, well, what can be done about what's gone wrong? How shall things be set right? I mean, everybody has to answer that question. And it is really worthwhile whenever you're considering any belief system out there, any religion, any viewpoint, just say, hey, so tell me, how do you answer these particular questions? You, man, that, that's just so insightful. I believe Christianity has amazing, beautiful, and true answers that are deeply, deeply satisfying. You know, we all talk about the good news of Christianity, and it is amazingly good news. But there's some bad news as well. And the good news actually takes on more power when we understand the bad news. You know, if you wind up, if you wind up misdiagnosing what's wrong, you're going to wind up really not understanding what is needed to deal with what has gone wrong. So for example, like if you have an ugly, you know, you realize you've got an ugly splotch on your skin and it's been growing and you think, well, I'm just going to get a little cosmetic makeup. I'm going to use a little moisturizer. I'm going to take care of that. Well, I mean, and, and if what you really have is a cancerous tumor growing on your arm and you're trying to use a little bit of cosmetic makeup, you have misdiagnosed what's gone wrong. And your solution is only going to make things much, much worse. I mean, Christianity has a, a profound diagnosis of what's gone wrong. And then the only true remedy for how can things be said right? It's the good news. And the good news becomes wonderful, great, uh, amazing news when we understand just how dire the, the bad news is. You know, the Apostle Paul captures that in, in, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter seven, he, he winds up saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, there are just in like that couple, couple words, he understands the full diagnosis of what's gone wrong and the amazing, beautiful remedy. There are woes and evils inside of me and all around me, and yet Jesus Christ is God's remedy to all that has gone wrong. 
But Paul lingers for quite a bit of time in terms of what's gone wrong, and we're going to do that as well. But you know, there's so much confusion today about what's gone wrong. I mean, confusion everywhere. It was 1973 when a medical doctor named uh, uh, Carl Manager, he wrote a book asking, well, what became of sin? Now, 50 years ago, he's not a psychologist, he's not a pastor, He's a medical doctor dealing with patients whose lives were being ruined and he's trying to figure out there, there, was, there, were no, there was no longer language, there was no longer ideas, there were no longer concepts for, for people to understand, well, what are some things that have gone wrong that might be exacerbating you know, their symptoms? What, are, what became a sin, manager wondered. It was already disappearing in 1973 from our cultural understandings. And five decades later, it's like going, going, gone. Confusion everywhere. Flawed explanations and failed solutions everywhere. And, And sadly, even in the church, we have so many flawed explanations that generate failed solutions. Legalism. Flawed explanation for what's gone wrong. Going to lead to a a failed solution. Cheap grace, you go to the other end of the extreme. Another flawed explanation that's going to lead to failed solutions. You know, these superficial explanations of guilt and shame and, and this conscience that is tweaking us inside that don't take into any account lament and contrition and sorrow and, and turning to God. You know, flawed explanations are going to lead to failed solutions and the ongoing experience of guilt and shame that seem to have no relief. These shallow self-help programs that we attach a verse or two and think now it's radically, wonderfully biblical. Flawed, flawed solution, a flawed explanation and failed solutions. And, and I, I tell you, I think here's the one that just gets me the most. We have now so diminished the, the glorious, holy, majestic, magnificent, awesome, sovereign Lord God Almighty that we have just us. He just no longer cares about any of this stuff that's gone wrong. He just kind of gives it a wink and a passing nod and everything's okay. And Again, that's that's a flawed explanation of God that's going to lead to failed solutions. And again, I'm not talking about stuff that's out there in the world. I'm just talking about stuff that's in-house. Now, for three weeks, we're going to take a look at what's gone wrong. And I tell you, you're going to need to have some moral courage to do that. It's hard. I do not like looking at what's gone wrong in Brian Rice's life. I do find it much easier to see what's gone wrong in your lives. <laughs> hey, does, isn't that how marriage works? Isn't that how parenting works? Isn't that what goes on at the workplace? I mean, nobody can see what's wrong in themselves, and we can all see what's wrong in everybody else. It takes a lot of moral courage. It takes a spiritual gift of wisdom and insight that has some humility and honesty. Um, it's going to take some perseverance. For three weeks, we're going to try and help you understand what's gone wrong. And I'm just going to ask you to hang in there for these three weeks. And by the way, as we're, we're looking at what's gone wrong all the way through these three weeks, there's going to be like these little foretastes of, of grace. But, but today I'm going to tell you four things about what's gone wrong. Next week, we'll talk about three more things about what's gone wrong. And those seven things are going to kind of give us the big picture. 
And then that week in our, in our midweek learning community, we're going to take a really close look at, at um, well, how, how's God transforming us? I mean, it's one thing to be forgiven, but how do we become good? How do we become virtuous? How do we become the kind of people that we were meant to be? And we know the, the flawed explanations don't work. So what, what will work? That's what the mid-sized learning community is going to be about. And then week number three, Sunday number three, we're going to look at this, this tragic alienation and these terrible antagonisms that exist because of sin. Oh, it's about the worst thing that has happened because of sin. Alienation and antagonism uh, against one another. But then the final week, week number four, uh, it's going to be all about grace. Because as we're going to see throughout Genesis 3, and we'll be talking about this every, every Sunday, but, uh, but the final Sunday in August, it's like it's all about grace. It's all about redemption. It's all about the plan that God is initiating. And what that's going to do is that's going to set the stage then for, for September and October when we're going to look at this a magnificent, full-scope salvation plan that God has. And we're going to look at these outstanding, excellent, thrilling words that describe all that God is doing to fix all that has been broken. But today, we're going to look at four things about what has gone, gone wrong. Number one, it all starts with an intruder. Now, the serpent, only here in the Old Testament, is the serpent identified as the evil one. Now, there'll be other times in the Old Testament where you'll see a serpent, but it's never, never referring to this evil entity. Uh, here it is, now the serpent. But notice the serpent does not even get dignified with a name. It's not called Satan. Do you know in the Old Testament, the, the name Satan only appears 14 times. 11 of them are in the book of Job. The, the name title Satan does not even appear until First Chronicles. You know, a long, 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 long time goes by until the, until the word Satan is even used to describe the enemy. The devil, that is never even used in the Old Testament, doesn't appear until the New Testament. Now, by the way, we read in Jesus uh, his understanding, and here we pull a couple of things together, but in John chapter 8, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, some of those people who had one of those flawed explanations for, for, for what's gone wrong, says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, so yes, you know, as time would go on, there would be a lot of reflection and understanding about, about, about the serpent, the devil, and Satan. But, but for the most part, the Old Testament is just not that concerned to wonder about the origins of this enemy. Now, what the Old Testament, what Genesis chapter 3 is very concerned about, is what's the enemy doing? And so we read very carefully what well, this enemy is lying and deceiving and distorting and slandering and accusing and trying to diminish the goodness of God, the truth of God, the, the, the love of God. It's trying to create suspicion in the hearts of Adam and Eve about who God is. And that's what the enemy always does. You see it right here in the Garden of Eden. We'll see it in the book of Job. We will see it in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We'll see it with Peter at the trial of Jesus. 
That's what the enemy is always doing. If the enemy can, 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 can cause you and I to have doubt and disbelief about the goodness and love and truth of God, then we are in perilous position and so prone to fall. So that's exactly what he does and that's what his work is all about and that is what we see happening in Genesis chapter three. And when you and I are in times of suffering and difficulty and when life is not working out, his job is easier than ever. And the enemy comes along with lies and distortions, saying things to us about God that we start to believe that are simply atrocious and cause you and I to be distanced from God. That's exactly what's going to happen here. So there is an intruder. Not much said about the origins, not much interest about that, just the fact that the enemy is there and doing really bad stuff. Number two, about sin. There is always something that is just simply irrational and maybe even a sort of insanity about sin. Now, I get it that people don't like either of those words today. They just sound hard, tough words. By the way, it doesn't matter what they sound like. They're still true about describing sin. There's something irrational always about sin. There's, there's a, a, a twinge of insanity about sin, but if you want a politer word, just call it the mystery of sin. It's like, why did it happen? Why did Adam and Eve ever taste the forbidden fruit? Why did they do it? There's no real good answer for that. There just isn't. Well, yes, they saw it was desirable, but that, but that alone is not the answer for why they did it. That alone doesn't answer why they chose to listen to a talking snake. I mean, did did it even enter their minds for a moment? Huh, this is not normal in the garden. There's no other animal that is talking to us. And now this one is. And this one is saying bad things about our creator God, the one whom we have believed and trust and love and enjoy the one who has given us this paradise, this idyllic location, this one who has created a place for us to to live in harmony and shalom and flourishing, this one that we have just enjoyed life with. Remember in in July when I said, hey, chapter two comes to an end and Adam and Eve, you know, we're we're naked and no shame. And then chapter three, now the serpent. And well, how, how long was there between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three? We don't know for sure. I personally think it was quite some time. I personally think that Adam and Eve had quite a good run with God for some time. And then suddenly the serpent appears and starts to challenge God. Now, now again, the fruit was desirable, but listen, they knew this from God. This is from chapter two. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will certainly die. Now, Eve is repeating some of these words back to the serpent about about this. Well, did God say the serpent asked? And here's what the woman says. Well, we may eat from uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So far, she's okay. But then she winds up saying, uh, uh, you must not touch it. All right, God didn't say that. Maybe that was implied. But then she says, for you will die. Now there's a big change. God said, you will certainly die. And she takes away that definitive. Well, you will die. And the devil right away comes back. Oh, no, you will not certainly die. 
And Galen just accuses God for having all kinds of malicious intentions about Adam and Eve. But we still come back, but why did she believe the serpent when they'd had such a beautiful condition, when they were living with the original goodness? It's just a mystery to which there is no clear answer other than they did it. And we do it too. And we do not have original goodness any longer. Instead, we come with all sorts of flaws and failures and mistakes and distortions and and brokenness. Man, for us today, sin is easier and more natural than ever. We we have inclinations to that. And, and, And these temptations are so prevalent. Over the years, I've been, I've been doing this for more than 40 years. And over the decades, I have so many conversations with people who come to me and after they've done something wrong and, and they say, Pastor Brian, I just don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I did it. I can't believe that I did it. And if I, I, I would do anything if I could go back and, and have a do-over for that one. I, I mean, it's like the Monday morning quarterbacking about sin you know, when we're in the heat of the game, when we're in the heat of the moment, when sin is attractive, alluring, and appealing, then we're not so much thinking that it's going to be bad for us. We're just saying, man, I really want to do this. I mean, maybe we know we shouldn't, but we sure want to. And maybe we're thinking, well, you know, I, I might not get away with it, but I, I think I can. And we give in. And in the moment of giving in, and then of being exposed, then it's like, what was going on? Well, what, what, it's, it's the irrationality, it's the insanity, it's the mystery of what sin does to us. I mean, it's just, I can't give you an explanation, just, it's irrational. And, and yeah, and we keep on doing it over and over. Do you remember uh, Einstein's definition, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? I mean, what's even more irrational is we keep on doing the same sins. And that's, by the way, where addictions come from. By the way, you know, complete, full sympathy and understanding about addictions. I mean, it's just part of what's gone wrong. And, and when there's addictiveness inside of us, it gets so easy, even though we know it's going to have, it gets so easy just to rationalize and explain and do it again and do it again. I mean, the same thing happens for, for uh, abusers and their victims. It's like, oh, I'll never do that again, I promise. And, and, and yet, there's something irrational and insane and we just keep on doing it and we keep on letting other people do it. Um, why? It's just, there's always going to be an element of irrationality. And it never stays hidden. Do you remember? I don't think they run them anymore. I hardly ever watch TV, so I'm not up to date with commercials. Remember, remember the old commercial about Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Er, not true. Uh, maybe it once was true, but it no longer is true. By the way, do you know Las Vegas is called Sin City? Now, by the way, it got the name Sin City because originally with all the gambling going on, you know, the mobster world moved in there to, to make money off of that. That's why they called it Sin City, all the kind of mobster gangster stuff going on. But today, you know, with that kind of cleared up, mostly somewhat, you know, it's still called Sin City because every sin and every pleasure that you can imagine, you can find for sale, easy access right there in Sin City, Las Vegas. And what happens in Vegas no longer stays in Vegas because of a thing called the cell phone and the camera. 
And so now what happens in Vegas very quickly gets posted by somebody else watching you on Facebook and Instagram. And what you thought you're doing in secret in Vegas is not staying in Vegas. But we think we'll get away with it. Again, you see how irrational it is? Oh, I'll get away with it. I'll, I'll be the one. This will, I'll be the exception. There's something irrational. Number three about sin. Sin is internal, and yet it doesn't stay there. It becomes invasive. It spreads to every part of life. Yeah, there's always something internal going on. Uh, we read in verse 6, The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Okay, so that's all some internal stuff going on. So she took and she ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate as well. We read in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the book of James, every person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed against some real internal language. Uh, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Again, a lot of internal language there, but now listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 6. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart, and an evil person brings evil things out of the evil that is stored up in their heart. For, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, sin is always internal, so I'm starting there, but pretty soon it is making its way to the words, to her speech, to her actions, to her behaviors. Uh, soon they become habits and patterns. But not only is it individual, it starts to get sort of like overflowing into to the world around us. And we start to see society itself, structures and systems themselves becoming just like, like sin flavored and, and infused. I'll, I'll give you one illustration. I, I, I don't wish to harp on this too much. But so, yeah, we all know the issue of, of the internal lusts of sin and wrong sexual desires. But what happens when you live in a society where it's just structured into everything? I mean, the pornography industry is a massive structural systemic evil. You know, the, uh, the prostitution and, and, and child prostitution and the slave trade for sexual, I mean, those things are all structured systemic. It's not just an individual thing. It starts there, but just spreads and it just gets, and that's, I mean, we no longer live in paradise. We now live in a fallen world where so much is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's so easy for things to go wrong. Which now leads to the fourth thing. Sin is always inexcusable. Uh, let me read a couple verses from, uh, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. And you've already heard a couple of these words before, but let me, uh, let me just read a few more. I'll read, read them uh, for you again. So then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day which kind of would have been the pattern. But this time, something different happens. They hid from God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, yes, I did. Well, no, the man said, the woman... You put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit, and I ate it. It's her fault, not my fault. Now, you remember in chapter 2, when, when God brought Eve to Adam, Adam said, oh, God, she is amazing. He's singing a different song now. God, why'd you ever give her to me? 
That was a little bit too loud of a laugh back there. God, listen to what God says to Eve. What is this you have done? Eve, what is this you have done? Eve, how could you have done this? Not my fault. It's the serpent. By the way, which I think you created, the serpent deceived me. Man, I tell you what, ever since that, that first terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, we have been excuse-making and blame-shifting. The devil made me do it. He might have been the first person to say it, but she sure wasn't the last. My addiction made me do it. My genes made me do it. My circumstances made me do it. My family of origins is why I did it. My parent is why I did it. My kid is why I did it. My spouse is why I did it. My boss is why I did it. My just put any other person in there you want. Everybody else is doing it. That's why I did it. Excuse making and blame shifting. Maybe excuse making by blame shifting. You know, through the centuries, theologians, pastors, they've actually asked a really intriguing question. There's no answer to it, but, but it is intriguing. What would have happened if instead of Adam and Eve excuse-making and blame-shifting, what if they were said, oh God, we did it. God, I did it. I was so wrong. I was so wrong. God, will you forgive me? I confess my wrongdoing. God, have mercy. I mean, we, what would have happened if they would have, instead of excuse-making and blame-shifting, which is so natural, is what sin wants us to do, what if they had just confessed with great lament and sorrow and turned to God? What would have happened? You know, we don't see a word of lament or sorrow or contrition or repentance from Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But here's what we do see. God pursues them relentlessly, even without those things. God will not give up on Adam and Eve. He will not give up on any of us. God will not allow sin to remain unaddressed. God will still judge sin. He names her for what it is. He limits its power. He limits its consequences. But he then begins to move into providing the solution for what's gone wrong. Now, that solution is going to continue and grow in power as the centuries go on until it comes to Jesus Christ. And I'll have a final word about that uh, after worship. But there is power and lament and sorrow and confession.